We are in the, the midst of our latest installment, this mini-series called Grace Stories, which we try to do a couple of times a year. Grace Stories are real-life, authentic stories that courageously share a glimpse of brokenness while pointing to the healing, transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives. Last week, I shared my conviction that in my 12 years here as pastor, I'm not sure there's anything else beyond grace stories that has impacted the culture of our church in terms of shaping gospel culture here at Grace Redeemer Church. To borrow a phrase from Adam Voice's grace story last week, grace stories help break down any assumptions or perceptions of plastic Christianity. We're not interested here in our church uh, in putting on a, a religious facade, in pretending that things are okay, in giving that plasticky Christian smile to each other on Sunday mornings. We're striving to become a community of faith that's willing to admit our weakness and need that arises out of our sin so that we can highlight the all-surpassing strength of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones of the last century wrote this, as we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil and with all its difficulties and sadness, nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christian and who claim the name of Christ should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution and here is the answer. This morning, Sherry Davis is here to point us to the only answer, Jesus himself, who enabled her to endure and now to begin to overcome some incredibly painful experiences. My great story, and I'm probably going to read it all. I'm not a real good speech maker, so. I'm a great story because God chose me to be his daughter and offered hope and salvation to me. I am a daughter of the king and join heir with, join heir with Jesus Christ to God's blessings. You can be a recipient of his grace and hope, too. Listen and look for him as he's waiting for you this morning. I have been asked to share a few snippets of my story. I hope you will experience God through the telling of it. I am a Jersey girl born in 1951 and one of four children. My dad passed away when I was in high school. My husband went to be with Jesus at age 35. My sons passed away, one while still born in the womb and the other at two weeks old. My parents did, did the best they knew how in raising our family. We were the typical middle-class family of the 50s, station wagon dog and rose gardens. As long as I can remember, my parents took us to Sunday school. I heard about Jesus' love at a very young age. The summer I was in third grade, we went to Word of Life camp, and I accepted God's grace and gift of salvation. It was a real decision. I always wanted to be a good girl, and be accepted and was afraid of not being with God and my family when I got old and died. 
I liked going to church and wondered if I was good or bad enough for Jesus to die for me. Somehow I knew that I was a really bad person beyond being born a sinner, but I didn't know why. As an adult, I understood. I remember thinking, but why would God bother about me? I also knew that after that prayer at camp, I was his. I was taught as a child to wear black clothes because I needed to hide my weight, so I never wore bright colors. Okay, let's fast forward to 1991. While serving on the leadership team of a singles group at another church, we had just concluded a divorce recovery seminar. The leadership team stayed behind to close the buildings down. I was the last one in the parking lot. I never made it to the diner where we were all going to debrief over coffee. On this cool October night, as I was unlocking my car, I was pushed to the ground by a man hiding nearby. The ground was hard and my coat didn't cushion the fall. In addition to in addition to this man's private parts, he used his gun to rape me in the same manner he used his body parts. I hid in my room, never leaving for days after that. Even my church family hid. But the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 5. Because of the physical and emotional impact of what happened, I lost my job as a corporate instructor. I couldn't handle the foot traffic of strangers. My personal hygiene suffered, and emotionally I felt dirty and scared all the time. God purposes to use all things to bless his children, in Romans 8.28. Now disabled and unemployed, an opportunity to continue my degree in counseling opened up. I could live in the dorms, which let me see and feel what young people were about. I was 42, and that was God, not me. I always knew God had more for me than being a victim. 20 years later, in 2015... I was coming alongside a pastoral counselor whose female client had all sorts of issues. Her story is not my story, but God used her recounting of her horrible experiences to open me up. Not long after that, there was a moment while alone in my apartment, I hit the wall, emotionally hit the wall. Nightmares with my eyes wide open. I thought I was crazy like hospitalization crazy. I called my counselor, and we began talking. Details of those childhood seaside vacations came flooding back until last year. I, I'm sorry. Until last year, I just did not remember. Our parents left us in the care of a trusted college-age cousin. You can see by the family photos, that's when I lost my smile. I was six or seven years old when it began. He taught us swimming underwater between his legs, and he threw ours. He would pat and handle us in appropriate ways. As a child, this at first felt soothing. My feelings of shame came flooding back. Surely I had caused it. But I felt something was very wrong. Mom had said I misunderstood his actions. Later, I heard the adults laughing as my parents recounted what I said. They said I was a child, and I didn't know what I was talking about. I was violated again. 
I know now that my parents were ill-equipped to handle it. I had forgotten all these details, though, and they were hidden inside of me. I had lost my smile. I had another reason to hide and wear black. I didn't know. I didn't understand. I just hid. This victimization affected me in in so many ways throughout my life, but I never knew why certain feelings would come. Why am I remembering this history now? And the questions, so many questions came like a waterfall. I was raped in 1991 and did pretty well with that counseling help. And now, this is my conversation with God. God, it's 2015. I'm 63. You had to shine a light on this now. What is the purpose of knowing this now? For months I questioned, am I really saved? And you can imagine that repeated conversation with a pastoral counselor. The reality was I was a sexually abused child. Why did my parents not listen to me? Why did they laugh at me? Betrayed by my parents and other adults who cared for me, where were they? I didn't know how to process this as a six-year-old. I just shut up and didn't talk about it. God wanted to heal me. Last year, it was his time to shine a light into this very dark place of my emotions. As I kept asking God, why now? This is what came to mind. God talking to me now. Sherry, I protected you all those years. You couldn't have handled the details of knowing about the child abuse any sooner. I had to make you able to hear it and come to me. I am your healer. And Sherry, just as the story in the Old Testament when the Jewish people were going to be annihilated, Mordecai said to Queen Esther, It is for such a time as this that God put you where you are. And that's Esther chapter 4. And the people were not annihilated. God told me this. The adults that have come, I'm sorry, the details that have come back to your memory are for a healing for you and others. He said, tell my story. Tell them how I protected you. Tell them how I was there all the time. Our God is so good. Tell them how you were able to survive and thrive. When it was time to know, I came to you, I came alongside you, and you have freedom. I have already been blessed to come alongside a few women who are abused. Second uh, Corinthians twelve eight through 10 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And now I have my smile back. I don't need to wear black any longer because of God's commitment to draw me closer to him in order to show his love. This happened with help from a very patient pastoral counselor, also by reading the word, throwing temper tantrums while learning about that hidden anger I had had my whole life, 
that had to be given to God and learning that a lot of what I thought I knew about myself was behind a dark glass. I am learning to give, forgive my parents, my, the sexual abusers, and myself. I am not done. Yes, I am a work in process. God says, the light has shined in your darkness, and you have freedom. Um, one of my favorite songs is Victory in Jesus. The first verse starts with, I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory. Will you stand and sing the chorus with me? Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He taught me and he bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me ere I knew and all my love is due. you bow your heads with me as I pray. Lord, my heart breaks freshly because this world is not the way it's supposed to be. This kind of brokenness is not what you designed for humanity and our relationships. The pain that Sherry endured and freshly feels as she courageously tells her story. Lord, you never wanted that for any of your children. But sin has twisted, corrupted, decayed what you designed good. And we stand here in praise, even still, because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead means that you are renewing all things. You are restoring the years lost to the locusts that have eaten everything and destroyed. You will renew creation and your people, including Sherry's heart. We trust that today. We ask that her story this morning would be used by you in a powerful way, Lord, to unleash renewal, restoration, and rebuilding of the devastated cities, the devastated hearts. Lord, bring new life because of Jesus, and through him we pray. Amen. Sherry's story, it's raw and disturbing, but sadly it might not be so surprising, especially because her story has elements that are in common with many of your stories. I share that not because I know all of the details of your lives, your pasts, your pains. I share that because I've counseled enough and lived enough and read enough statistics like these 
almost one in five American women have been the victim of an attempted or committed rape. 44% of sexual assault victims are under the age of 18, 80% under the age of 30. Approximately four out of five assaults are committed by someone known to the victim. 82% of juvenile victims are female. And the scariest thing I came across was a study estimating that only 30% of sexual assaults are reported to the authorities, which means these scary statistics I just read don't even begin to paint to the extent of ugliness that our world faces and that many of you face. Sherry is not alone. You are not alone. In light of Sherry's story, which she's told us is no longer about rape, no longer about molestation, but is now about the rebuilding, restoring, renewing power of the gospel, I'd like to point us to a passage from the prophet Isaiah. It happens to be the passage Jesus chose as the scripture for his first sermon, if we could call it that, is the beginning of his public ministry described in Luke chapter, 20, uh, Luke chapter 4. When he read Isaiah 61, the first two verses, and said to those in the synagogue, the scripture, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus was saying Isaiah 61 is about him. It describes what he as Messiah came to accomplish. And the chapter starts with a series of purpose statements, including these thoughts, verses 2 and 3. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The Savior's work doesn't just promise an end to brokenness. He doesn't just say no more. Jesus promises to undo brokenness, to reverse grief, which is symbolized by ashes in the text, and to turn it into a a crown of beauty, to transform mourning into joy, to take off the spirit of despair, and to put on a garment of praise. What Jesus is saying is that the gospel does not merely offer incremental change in life. The gospel promises radical transformation. Not just no more, but the undoing, the renovating, the restoring of all things. Whatever your brokenness involves, whatever your deepest pain is about, Do you believe that resurrection power through faith in Jesus Christ is able to change whatever suffering life has brought you and turn it into joy? Isaiah's message continues with these promises in verse 4. But there's a change from the pronoun me, because the Messiah is talking about his work, to the pronoun they. He says in verse 4, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Who's they? 
the Messiah is talking about all those he described up above. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, those who mourn, those who despaired. Does it make any sense? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the amazing nature of grace, that uh, God doesn't look for the accomplished. He doesn't look for the unscathed, the, the competent, those who think much of themselves, who are filled with pride. God, this is the way he operates. He looks for the humble, who see with spiritual eyes that in their sin they're nothing, But in salvation, Jesus is everything. Isn't that what we said last week, if you were around, interacting with Adam's grace story? God said to the Apostle Paul, Sherry quoted these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is so significant here is that the Lord brings blessing to his people, the beginning part of the chapter, in order to send them on his mission of rebuilding, restoring, renewing. This is what Sherry's doing, even this morning, in telling her story. She's pointing to God's blessings of comfort in mourning, of a crown of beauty instead of ashes, of a garment of praise placed upon her instead of a a spirit of despair. And I trust that God is already using her in these moments to open up a path of rebuilding, restoring, renewing. Who could possibly do that more effectively than a woman like Sherry? Open up a path of healing for you. The reason I say that is if we apply some of those sobering statistics to a community as large as Grace Redeemer Church, It means that a good number of you have lived in that kind of shame and despair as victims of sexual assault. But many of you have never shared that wound, and you've never pursued sufficient help in order to begin to taste real healing. Maybe you don't think that's possible at all, and you closed off your heart, but hearing Sherry just might be the spark to awaken your soul to think it is finally time for me to escape this dark hole. Might God use the comfort, the blessing that he's brought to Sherry to open up this path of rebuilding, restoring, renewing in you. That's her prayer that she expressed to us. That's what she believes God said to her in the work of healing in in making her new again that he called her, has called her to tell this story to you and to many others. I believe Sherry's story is going to open up safe passages for many of you. Just like Celebrate Recovery on Wednesday evenings helps to provide a safer environment for people in their brokenness to realize they're not alone. Sherry's story, publicly shared in these two services, communicates you are not alone. She's able to understand your pain. She knows the fear of uh, worrying that people won't believe you. She lived in that. She grew up in that. 
She knows your feelings of shame and disgrace, and she longs to see God use her to help bring about gospel healing. In verse 5, there's another pronoun shift. More gospel promises directed personally now to you. And it culminates in this promise, verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. This morning is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And we're spending the 10 o'clock adult Christian education hour highlighting our own ministry called Refuge 686, which uh, urges and equips the church to engage in global orphan care, foster care, and adoption. And I want to pose this question here. It's not so foreign to the text as we might think. In light of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I want to pose this question. Why might an orphan feel shame? A couple of thoughts uh, that I'll, I'll offer. An orphan, as a child, he lacks something core to his identity. Other kids belong to Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. That family, you know them, but he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that foundation. He doesn't have that sense of belonging. His name isn't connected to others. The orphan often feels unwanted. No one will claim her as their daughter. She hopes year by year from one foster family to another, but it never happens. Every child craves and needs the security and belonging of parental love, but the orphan so often lacks that and tends to begin to believe she doesn't deserve love. If we apply that set of thoughts to our spiritual relationship with our Heavenly Father, we would say this, sin is fundamentally alienating. It, it alienates us from our perfect Creator and Father. Sin is a choice to be orphans. Sin is a choice uh, that expresses a preference to make a name for ourselves rather than embrace the identity that our Creator and Father offers to provide to us, an identity that fulfills and satisfies and comforts. So how does God solve that problem through the work of His Son, Jesus? Paul tells us in Galatians 4 that when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son to redeem those under law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So, if you believe, Paul says, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. At the heart of the gospel are family promises. A transformation from orphan to child and an inheritance that's promised. Because orphans don't inherit anything. But listen again to what Jesus, the Messiah, promises on Isaiah 61, verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. What else but the transforming power of the gospel can free a sherry 
from the feeling of being dirty, from shame, though she did nothing wrong. Jesus promises to take away shame and disgrace and to replace them with a double inheritance, superabundance, and a new identity as an adopted child of the living God because children naturally receive an inheritance from their parents. Lastly, there's one more pronoun shift to I. But first, look at the language of sin from a couple of other verses. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says this, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And then Zechariah the prophet, towards the end of the Old Testament, describes one of his visions. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. You see the metaphor that these passages use to describe sin and the removal, the cleansing from sin. Faith in Christ the Savior means that clothes, figuratively speaking, filthy from sin, are replaced with garments of forgiveness and cleansing. Faith in Christ means that black clothes, which hide shame, are thrown off and replaced with white clothes that represent purification, the removal of shame, the removal of guilt, whether or not it's your own sin or others' sin against you. Here in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, the I statement The gospel enables the redeemed and healed sinner to say, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. How can Sherry in her brokenness of her past, stand here and sing and lead in singing and invite you to sing with her victory in Jesus? It is only possible because Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, allowed himself to be clothed with judgment on the cross so that all who trust in him might be clothed with righteousness and peace and purity. It's my prayer for each of us. Do you believe that? Regardless of your pain, regardless of the trauma that others have committed against you, regardless of your own sin, which you yourself are guilty of before a holy God, do you believe that there is new hope, there's new life, that Jesus offers garments of praise and righteousness to replace your garments of shame and disgrace? Let's pray toward that end. Lord Jesus, Isaiah 61 is for us. It's for Sherry. It's for every person in this room. Because our sin and the sin of others against us brings shame. It brings guilt. And we crave freedom from that. We crave cleansing. We crave newness. 
We ask, Lord, that you would do this work in us by your spirit of rebuilding, restoring, renewing, and that as you give us strength, as you have Sherry already this morning, that you'd use us in one another's lives to do the same, to offer hope, to bring about this restoration that is only possible through the transforming power of the gospel. Jesus is alive. He has conquered death and everything death has brought in sin. And we taste it this morning. Victory, life, freedom. We give you praise, Lord Jesus. Amen.